This is Cincinnati Edition on 91.7 WVXU. I'm Lucy May. Black farmers make up only about 1% of the nation's producers, according to data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and their farms tend to be smaller in acreage compared with their white counterparts. Historic discrimination has contributed to those results, and now the USDA is trying to repair relationships by making new assistance available to marginalized communities. Joining me now to tell us more about all this are Kentucky Black Farmers Association Director and Ballou Estates owner Tiffany Belfield Elamine. Welcome, Tiffany. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm well. Thanks so much for being with us. Brick Gardens founder, Dominique Peebles. Thanks for being here, Dominique. Thanks for having me, Lucy. The Center for Public Integrity senior reporter, April Simpson. Welcome, April. Hi, Lucy. Thank you. And freelance journalist, Amy Mayer. Thanks for being here, Amy. Thanks for inviting me. Do you have questions or comments? Give us a call at 513-419-7100, or you can email talk at wvxu.org. Tiffany, I understand farming runs in the family for you. You learned from your grandfather and grandmother, and you talk about riding on the tractor with Pawpaw, how your grandma taught you to take one seed and feed a tribe. Where was your family farm growing up, and, and what were some of those early lessons? Yes, so um, I was blessed to have family land on both sides of my family. So um, my grandmother's family farm was in Madison County um, in a hamlet called Concord, um, and that was the home place. Then my grandfather's side of the family um, had a larger home place, um, and it was what was considered Fayette County, um, which people like to say Lexington, but the county and the city were separate for a very long time. So um, it was on the county side. Um, and the lessons, you know, we had lots of acres. We had over 100 acres on the home place and about 30 acres on the Blue Estates. Um, but we learned where it came from. We know the importance of the history of the land, how long it's been there, and and everybody that has walked across it over the years and generations. So um, it's definitely um, a legacy um, that was taught in that land. Dominique, you also grew up on a family farm in Kentucky. Can you share some of your memories with us? Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, my memories, <laughs> you know, when you're that age, the last thing you want to do is spend your summers outside in the sweltering heat. Um, and my family migrated to Kentucky. So it started with my great great grandparents and great grandparents where they owned um, a ton of acreage in Ralph, Alabama. So over the decades, my family migrated all the way up to Kentucky and then some went further and went into Chicago. But that farm stayed in the family. So there were plenty of times of either my parents going down or all of us going down to uh, help out or, you know, work on the farm and stuff like that. So uh, when you're that young, um, you don't really, you know, I, the thing that shocks me is like I'm doing exactly the thing that I told myself I didn't like when I was at a young age. Right. So uh, it seems to me that parents always know. But my fondest memories are um basically of my dad growing food uh, and then making sure that our surrounding neighbors also got to share in that food. That, when I trace things back, that's the essential thing that happened to me as a young kid where that just kind of stuck with me. So fast forward to now, I'm attempting to carry that same torch, right? Just grow food for the people that surround uh, me and make sure that they have that uh, nourishment and education. Uh. Amy, you spoke to a number of black farmers in Ohio for your reporting in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network. 
Give us some perspective on black farming in America's past. Well, I think it's lovely, but also really important to hear stories like Tiffany's and Dominique's because there is a lot now of attention to the fact of how much land has been lost by African-American farmers and landowners. And that's that's really critical, but I think it's important to recognize that it, that it hasn't all been lost. Um, but also there are... Um, African-Americans today who are getting into farming, either because there is a, a piece of land that their family has managed to hold on to, or because they're living in a place where they recognize that there's not enough, uh, for example, fresh vegetables or affordable um, meat, and they feel that they can contribute in some way. So I spoke with some farmers in Southwest Ohio who had come to farming through these different avenues um, and had been getting a fair amount of support from Central State University Extension, um, the Central States and Wilberforce, and they have a pretty robust extension um, program to help Black farmers network with each other to, um, in some in some instances, convey federal dollars in the direction of some of that support, and also just to give uh, these farmers, especially beginning farmers, some of the connections they need for resources that can help them out resources that for decades, for most of the 20th century, were either flat out denied to black farmers or were um, presented in a way that required black farmers to jump through far more hoops than was were expected of white farmers in the same areas. We're talking about black farmers in the region and, and the legacy they're working to continue. You can join the conversation by calling 513-419-7100, or you can email talk at WVXU. Org. April, as Amy just alluded to, Black farmers have struggled with access to financial backing. Can you talk to us about the history of the USDA's loan practices? Yeah. Sure. So in the past, Black farmers have said that the USDA discriminates against them. Um, they said they were denied the opportunity to submit loan applications or access to timely loans and benefit programs. And that resulted in many taking on crushing debt and losing their farms. Um, in 1999, Black farmers settled what would become a more than $2 billion class action lawsuit against the department. Um, it resulted in payments to about 35,000 farmers. And, um, you know, successful claimants, they received some combination of cash and debt relief and tax payments, but really a small, a very tiny portion got the debt relief. And, um, you know, a lot of folks say not getting that debt relief um it really made it very difficult for them to continue in farming. Um, although the USDA couldn't foreclose on farmers while their claim was being processed, uh, they were still obligated to make payments on their loans. And they saw interest accrue, the process dragged on for years, and in the end, some claimants never had their debt forgiven. So a lot of this you know, contributed to land loss, um, to younger generations not wanting to get into farming, and uh, to the USDA having to do some work to build trust, rebuild trust with farmers. So we talked about how Black-owned farms are, are a much smaller percentage of the producers in the U.S. than white-owned farms, and these farms are, are also they're smaller operations. Does all that trace back to these discriminatory lending practices, April? Yeah, you know, some of it does. Like, as you said, you know, the history of discrimination, having less access to credit, that's really the lifeblood of agriculture. Um, and uh, but there are also, you know, massive changes in agriculture. It's really hard to do one thing and survive. Um, agriculture has become more mechanized. 
There have been these big population shifts from rural areas to cities um, because Black farmers tend to have less land. Um, they're operating in a system with USDA programs that are really tilted toward larger farms. And given how farm sizes vary by race, that's really taken a disproportionate toll on Black farmers. Again, we're talking about Black farmers in the region and the legacy they're working to continue. Do you have experiences to share with us? Give us a call at 513-419-7100 or email talk at wvxu.org. Amy, as I mentioned, Black-owned farms are now uh, dwindling even further. They make up about 1% of the producers. Are, are there other factors related to that? Why, why is that happening? Well, there's definitely been a trend across all types of farms that if you aren't big enough to operate at a certain scale, you're facing either a need to completely change your business model to market directly to consumers, farmers markets, CSAs, community supported agriculture, or restaurants, or you are kind of at this uh, inflection point, I suppose. So for Black farms, which as we've already noted, have historically dwindled, so they're working less land, they're typically working in um, fruits and vegetables, maybe um, small grains, but the kinds of agriculture that are least supported by federal mechanisms, the big farms that are eligible for crop insurance and emergency payments when there are disasters, these things are um, disproportionately tilted toward the larger farms, which means the larger farms, it's sort of a self-perpetuating thing. And as April mentioned, the credit, which is so critical to being able to have seeds that you can plant in the spring, which is credit you then pay off when you harvest, um, that is also at scale. And so if you're operating a smaller operation, you just um, may not be eligible for as much credit or you may it may be too much of a risk that even you don't want to take on. So there are many factors in play, but um, small operations are always at a disadvantage when it comes to trying to operate within the programs that USDA offers. And there has had, there have been some movements in the past couple of uh, major farm legislations called the Farm Bill to have more programs for what's called specialty crops, fruits and vegetables, and for smaller operations. But again, it takes time to apply for these programs. And it's the kind of paperwork and document producing that small farmers of any race don't typically want to apply their time to because they're in farming because they want to be outside and they want to be producing food. So there are a number of factors. Um, but I think that legacy that of discrimination that USDA has acknowledged is definitely something that further discourages those smaller operators who are African-American compared to smaller operators who may be white. <clears throat> Tiffany, what do you hear from younger generations of, of people. I mean, you know, the, my my impression is that younger generations aren't as interested in, in getting into farming as maybe their parents or grandparents had been. What are some of the reasons that you hear from people? And, and are you getting that sense that it's tougher to convince younger people to go that direction? Um, the yes and no. Um, and, and, if, and if you don't mind to jump back to the inflation reduction um, we did a lot of policy work and doing farm bill advocacy right now around that. And the issue is that a lot of conversation are happening without BIPOC farmers being in the space to actually make political changes for themselves. Um, but in Kentucky, there were five farmers of color who actually uh, 
were even considered FSA loan approved to be able to get that, you know, um, and people thought fought against it. And it was just five farmers amongst thousands of farmers. Um, and I just wanted to put that tidbit in um, into that conversation that you all are having. But when we're talking about younger farmers, younger farmers are really big into ag advocacy, sorry, excuse me, um, really big, big into um, food system organizing. They want to help get food moving around. And I think that some of the um, university and college level education around agriculture really puts you into this administrative role and doesn't really give you the education unless you really try to find a, a, a college that has a lot of research around their ag programs. It's hard to really get that, um, you know, what you want to get out of being in a relationship with an actual farmer who owns land from the beginning, from the seed to the table, to the business plan, to the category F taxes, all of that in between. And I'm, and, and then it's hard to find that. So um, as the association and working with other farmers, like we're creating that space. So there's a lot of space making happening to um, uh, really invite in and make um, a village for these younger farmers. But they're there. Um, they're definitely there for sure. Dominique, what are you hearing from from other young people? Uh, are, is there, are you hearing that there's kind of a a lack of interest? Is there interest? Is there Are there reasons that younger people don't want to get into farming other than maybe your experience? You, that my, my dad made me do this and I didn't like it when I was a kid. What What's going on there? Yeah, I think it's it's actually a lot of what um, Tiffany just stated. I, I, they're definitely there. Um, and, and, you know, that's proven to me every summer when we do our jobs program, right? We never run out of, we don't have a shortage of kids trying to learn farming. Um, and, and honestly, you know, to Tiffany's point and someone else's point earlier about the barriers and roadblocks, I think the, the thing that scares the younger generation away the most is all the advocacy that's needed to just grow something to eat, right? Like you can't just go, I mean, there's tons of land in the urban core, right? Where urban farmers are trying to use that land to, to up, to bring up their neighborhoods right but then you have to go through all of the hoops about zoning or about can you put your fence that close to the sidewalk or you know there, so there's always some type of roadblock that i think to tiffany's point a lot of the younger generation is coming in on the advocacy side of things because that's the thing that's presented to them right away a young kid says hey there's a plot in my neighborhood i would love to grow food for my community on it they have to go through 15 hoops just to plant that first seed, right? So now what it's doing is, is taking time away from them being able to actually plant and nourish those seeds and grow those crops. They're having to do a million other things just to get to that point. And, and that's something that I can speak to from experience, right? Like, you know, I'm not from Cincinnati, but Cincinnati is my home. So the people are my neighbors. And my drive was to just utilize the tools that we have, right? There's there's land everywhere. Why can't we get together as a community and then grow food for that actual community? But in just doing that, the first two years of Brick Gardens being in operation, we had to spend that two years working with city council and working with Green Umbrella to try to uh, put policies in place that would allow us to put up a greenhouse in Bond Hill or allow us to have chickens at our farms or bees. So, you know, there's... The, to your point or question, the, the youth are there. Um, they definitely want to try to take this stuff on. 
But I think the people that are already in it have to find a way to make it easier for this younger generation to get in and be able to do things. And Tiffany, you referenced just a minute ago that, you know, BIPOC farmers have not been involved maybe as much as they should have been in some of these discussions and, and legislative proposals. Um, talk more about that. What what kinds of problems has that created to kind of have something presented to people that they weren't involved in creating? You know, it's on a state and federal level. Um, being someone that you, by culture, we're like, oh, we just don't want to get into politics. Um, but when you realize when you're looking at forms, papers, and decisions that you're like, I know I wasn't there, um, you know, or people. Did we lose you, Tiffany? I think we're having a technical problem with with Tiffany. Um, April, what are your thoughts on that? Was there a lack of involvement from, you know, farmers that some of these initiatives were theoretically designed to help? What we needed was an invitation. Um, so I called my farmers up and I'm like, we're going to D.C. Farm bill is happening. We've been up there three or four times. And this was some farmers first time ever being to D.C., let alone Capitol Hill. So um, and this is people I'm 40. So this is I'm bringing high school students, college students, and I'm bringing my elders. So it's not a specific age group um, or specific farmer or, you know, anything. It's, It's literally a disconnect which is systemic racism of how we are disconnected from the powers they may be in legislation. And and as far as Kentucky is considered, um, I'm having conversations with different departments and they're like, I did not know that there was that many black farmers still. I did not know that those farmers were still doing that. I did not know. And so there's a knowing that's happening right now, um, if I must say so myself. Yeah real education that's had to happen. And we lost you there for just a moment, Tiffany. What um, do you think you you were talking about bringing farmers to Capitol Hill to really advocate for these measures? You know, before you did that and having this legislation drawn up without that input, what kind of impact did that have on, on the very farmers that theoretically this was supposed to help? You know, that's one of the things that um, we come up with proof to show, like you say, all this stuff is coming down to socially disadvantaged or underserved farmers. Here is at least this many farmers saying they didn't even hear about the program. Right. Um, And so the whole conversation of being able to bring a farmer and actually explain to them farm bill and them being able to put their story into a legislator's hand shaking hands and saying, this is what we're dealing with. We need this around um, our crop insurance. We need this around. These are our priorities. Even starting there, them seeing on paper that we have a priority um, definitely changed the needle, I feel, because before a lot of black farmers weren't getting a lot of information. Just in a year's time of us going up there and speaking to certain legislators, certain representatives, certain senators um, who are pushing black equity, pushing conservation practice, pushing social disadvantage um, percentages out of the like the Biden, uh, the Biden administration. Um, they now see us and, and we communicate. And so I'm getting attention from USDA and saying, hey, we now know you're down there. Here is coming down the pipeline and we want to help you get it. So we we are seeing the evidence of good advocacy and good relationship building. Amy, the USDA and the Biden administration, you know, have been saying they're going to make new federal dollars available to black and indigenous farmers in particular. What's that plan? 
They have a couple of things that they're working on. When I spoke with Robert Bonney, who is the um, Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation, he said that the Biden USDA or Tom Vilsack's Biden USDA is trying to bake equity into everything that they're doing. Obviously, the proof of that will be in, as Tiffany talked about, how many black farmers and other BIPOC farmers actually know about what is happening and what is available. But for example, in the project that I wrote about uh, for NPR and Fern, we looked at this um, $3 billion partnership for climate smart commodities, which is a USDA program separate from the Inflation Reduction Act that required everybody, every entity applying for one of these grants had to have an equity plan. Now, the tricky spot for USDA is that in the past, when they have tried to do things to sort of, quote unquote, right the wrongs with black farmers, there have been pushback from well-lawyered white farmers. And so some of that that um, uh, debt relief that never happened after the lawsuit, USDA tried to accomplish um, account for that in one of the big COVID packages. And there was a lawsuit from white farmers and they had to rewrite the program to be race neutral. So USDA in this major program that I wrote about required some sort of equity plan from all of the grant recipients, but those plans didn't necessarily have to specifically address BIPOC farmers. There was a bigger umbrella. And so there are groups like the National Black Growers Council and some of the other um, farm organizations serving BIPOC farmers, plus many HBC, historically black colleges and universities, land grant HBCUs in particular, like Central State in Ohio, that are trying to um, make sure that some of that grant money is going directly to BIPOC farmers. But it's not, um, it's going to be really interesting to see how successful overall those dollars are at reaching those farmers. Yeah, April, what um, what else is happening at the federal level to try to ensure that this money actually helps small family farms, uh, particularly those owned by Black and Indigenous farmers? Um, well, at the federal level, like Amy said, um, the agency is really trying to do this big culture change. Um, they're trying to uh, exercise discretion to the benefit of the producers. Um, I mean, some of that work involves working with third-party groups to improve access to capital and land. Um, they're training future generations for agriculture jobs by funding research and education at minority-serving institutions. Um, but some of the bigger projects uh, were through the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, one of those was providing financial assistance, including loan payments of past due amounts and the next installment of loan payments. Um, that was a program in the IRA. And then there was another program um, that was targeting discrimination. Anyone who's experienced discrimination in USDA's farm loan programs prior to January 1st, 2021. Um, I mean, so all of that is uh, our efforts that USDA is making to target, I guess, small, farmers of all sizes. Tiffany and Dominique, what do you think? Are you hopeful that these efforts at the federal level are going to make a difference and, and make it... Um, I don't know, more easier or, or at least less difficult for, for Black farmers to keep farming or for young people to get interested in farming? I was going to jump in just one second, and I promise I won't talk long, but the issue with the definitions at USDA level is socially disadvantaged and underserved is a big pot of money and a big pot of people. In Kentucky, the biggest issue is that Black farmers are listed with a lot of the demographics that get the majority. So usually there's nothing left over 
really for black farmers if there's not an in intentional engagement. And that just started happening as of this year. Just want to say that out loud. Um, <laughs> and the whole inflation reduction, I did the DFAP technical assistance for the state. And there are no black farmers that had the paper trail because nobody is getting their receipt of service. So all the things that made you eligible for that, we didn't have, but maybe two black farmers, maybe in the whole entire state that could possibly qualify and nobody has gotten their um, acceptance yet. Um, and then even to that in Kentucky, impoverished people, people who are also underserved don't fit the niche for the DFAP. So the things that were supposed to fix inflation did not impact us as it should here in the state of Kentucky. Um, um, that's all that I wanted to say. Yeah, I just feel like, yes, go ahead. Yeah. No, Dominique, what do you, what do you think? You're you're hearing all this. We've got we've gone over a lot of information today. Are are you at all hopeful? I mean, what is it going to take to help Black farmers uh, find the success that they've been denied for so long, and also to encourage younger people to get interested and in, you know take on farming? Uh, so I'm believe it or not, I'm actually. I am hopeful. Um, and I think there's a lot of signs of things happening in the positive direction. Now, it's going to take a long time, as it always does for people of color, but it's it's going to happen. And the reason I think that is because it, no one's looking at the unintended uh, stuff that can happen, right? Like what I'm hearing through all these conversations and what I know through my own experience is I started Brick Gardens just because I wanted to grow food. Five, six years later, I know more about policy advocacy. I've gone up to D.C. more times than I would have ever imagined to try to lobby for some of these federal dollars. Um, and what I do see is a huge group of BIPOC farmers being educated huh. in something that in the past we weren't educated yeah. on. So when I think about my great I'm sorry, Dominique, I'll have to leave it there. I've been talking with Kentucky Black Farmers Association Director and Belua State's owner, Tiffany belfield Elamin, Dominique Peebles, April Simpson, and Amy Meyer. This is Lucy May. This is Cincinnati Edition. Thanks for listening. <laughs>